The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Third class. Um, so um, I just want to say a few words um, about um, uh, maybe uh, how we engage in our conversation. Um, our teachers uh, got together and realized that uh, there may be a, a good idea to just share a few words about uh, how we go about uh, having interactions in this Zoom format. So it will be really helpful uh, for all the teachers that if you can use the raise hand um, functions in Zoom, which you can get access to through either participants or reactions for, we realized that some of you don't have the reactions, but under participants, um, you will be able to look at um, uh, your own name and uh, click on uh, either I think there's a dot, dot, dot um, where you can click on and um, raise your hand there. And if you do um, use reaction, and there is, a um, for some people, looks like it's not all uh, different versions of Zoom has this. Um, for those who have a raised hand, you can do that as well. This way we can bring the speakers up on the top of our list as well as in in the top row of our screen so we can see who's speaking. And sometimes it's a little hard for us to find you if you just unmute, begin to speak. <laughs> we don't know where the, the sound is coming from. And then um, the other thing I would say is that given the uh, size of our group, when you ask a question or make a point, maybe make one point at a time. Um, and to allow uh, everybody who wish to speak and to have a chance. So now we're we'll open it up for anyone who may have questions or comments up to this point uh, in our class based on the readings or your own reflection and practice. I hope this didn't make it more complicated for you to, <laughs> to raise your hand and speak. Let's see Kevin, please. Um, Good morning. Um, just a, a, a quick thing to say. Um, uh, I really appreciated um, having um, a couple of different translations of the sutta available. I've been enjoying going back and forth between the Maurice Walsh and um, uh, uh, Bikusudratos on Sutta Central, but also um, in looking for more background about some of the layers of the Sutta, I found uh, Tanisro Bikus' um, translation of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, and um, he has a wonderful maybe 10 or 12 paragraphs of introduction where he kind of parses the different layers of the Sutta, uh, you know, historically, and which parts are kind of classic saga narrative and which parts are specific to it. Um, I didn't want to be so forward as to post a link in the chat, but it's it's a wonderful thing to look up, and it, it's really enriched my appreciation for the sutta. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Kevin, for sharing that. Um, we will incorporate that in our 
um, maybe a, a link to share with everybody. Yeah, thank you. Uh, maybe I'll add, if you're interested in this type of thing, some of the analysis and the different layers and comparing translations and a little bit more of an analytical approach, then Pia Ton has a, it's a giant, uh, I don't know, it's over 100 pages on the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. So um, that's at Dhamma Fair. And there, I will say, there is a lot of scholarship on this sutta, about the historical layers. Not everybody agrees with all of them. And even back from um, the late 1800s, that very, when they first encountered, English speakers first encountered this sutta, there started the, all the analysis and commentary and stuff. So if you're interested, there's a lot out there for you. Yeah, for me, um, I, I do have um, uh, Chinese as my native tongue. I do find reading in different language translations can sometimes bring um, a very uh, interesting perspective in this. So for those who do have a second, third language, um, Sutta Central also have some of the different translations. And definitely Chinese parallel is uh, available there as well. Any other, uh, maybe uh, if there is one more question. And if not, I will pass this on to Diana to launch into the first teaching. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Ying. Yeah, there's um, something that uh, Kevin just pointed out and that uh, the four of us, when we're talking that we experience is it doesn't matter how many times you've read these suttas, there's always a richness. And whether it's the same thing again and again, like even me, I've talked about this sutta a number of times, both in the academic setting and in kind of the Dharma setting. And every time I look at it, I'm like, oh, wow, look at this. And I don't know, just my heart kind of sings like there's this depth that it just feels like there's so much there. So no matter your inclination, if you're more of a really practice-oriented person, you can find stuff here. If you want to approach it in an analytical way, you can approach it here. If you want to be inspired, uh, you can approach it this way. I don't know. There's so many different ways in, and there's so many different um, outcomes or things that we might find. So um, um it's makes it's happy it makes me happy to be able to share some of the richness with you all okay so um, I'm gonna start with a kind of continuing our story I'm going to um, start with section 4.13 chapter 4 section 13 and our translator uh, Maurice Walsh says, the Lord, you know, the Buddha, went with a large company of monks to Pava, where he stayed at the mango grove of Chunda the Smith. So we're calling Chunda a Smith, but he's a metal worker. So he makes things that people, that you make out of metal. And we might think about what is that? And Something that's uh, maybe not obvious when we think about it. initially, a metal worker is somebody who makes weapons. It's not the only thing they make, but they also make weapons. So this is not a somebody in the maybe in in the community that 
uh, prizes nonviolence. Somebody who makes weapons is some is a person like, oh, well, let's, they wouldn't be held with the highest esteem. Let's just say that. Or there would be some question about that. And then I'm continuing the sutta. And Chunda heard that the Lord had arrived at Pava and was staying at his mango grove. So he went to the Lord, saluted him, and sat down to one side. And the Lord instructed, inspired, fired, and delighted him with a talk on the Dharma. So maybe I'll say that this is standard um, language. If you will, it's a little bit of cut and paste. We see so much of this in the suttas. So this is not unique to Chunda the Smith. This is how it's described when everybody goes to um, meet the Buddha, um, to salute him and sit down to one side. And this is a, a sign of respect, to not sit right in front. And then salute is how uh, Maurice Walsh translates it. But it's there's a number of different ways we can translate it. And in the Pali, it's an idiom. So Walsh is just saying, salutes him and sits to one side. And then the Lord instructed, inspired, fired, and delighted him with the talk on the Dharma. That's also kind of a standard phrase that we see all throughout the sutta. And Chunda said, may the Lord accept a meal from you tomorrow with his order of monks. And the Lord consented by silence. Again, this is the standard response. And Chunda, understanding his consent, rose from his seat, saluted the Lord, and passing by to the right, departed. This again is standard and is another way that shows respect. We even see that um, today, if uh, anybody's going to like circumambulate uh, something of the Buddha stupa or do any circumambulation, you usually do it uh, clockwise so that you keep to the right what is what you um, are respecting. So this is just a tradition from um, ancient India that we has even carried forward um, to today. And as the night was ending, Chunda had a fine meal of hard and soft food prepared with an abundance of pig's delight. And when it was ready, he reported to the Lord, Lord, the meal is ready. This, uh, a fine meal of hard and soft food, this is also standard language. Sometimes uh, it's interpreted as cooked and raw food or maybe like curries and fresh food or there's a number of different ways we might understand it. But it's more just to show that there's a range of food and an abundance of food or something like this. I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Pig's Delight soon, but I'm going to finish uh, what happens here. Now I'm on section 4.18. Then the Lord, having dressed in the morning, took his robe and bowl and went with his order of monks to Chunda's dwelling, where he sat down on the prepared seat. Again, this is standard language. And said, serve the pig's delight that has been prepared to me. And serve the remaining hard and soft food to the order of monks. Very good, Lord said Chunda, and did so. And the Lord said to Chunda, whatever is left over the pig's delight, you should bury in a pit. Because, Chunda, I can see none in this world with its devas, maras, and brahmas. So he's pointing to all of the non-human entities. I can see none in this generation, pointing to the human entities with its ascetics, brahmins, princes, and people. 
So it doesn't matter where they are in the social class. There are no humans who, if they were to eat it, could thoroughly digest it, except the Tathagata. The Tathagata is how the Buddha refers to himself. Very good, Lord, said Chunda, and having buried the remains of the pig's delight in the pit, he came to the Lord, saluted him, sat down to one side. Then the Lord, having instructed, inspired, fired, and delighted him with the talk on the Dharma, rose from his seat and departed. So we see the same language again, right, about saluting and sitting down to one side and maybe to the right. Okay, pig's delight. What is pig's delight? So you can imagine there has been, uh, through the ages, there's been a lot of interest in this. I'll say the commentaries, that is, other than the suttas, the oldest literature that we have, the oldest preserved texts that we have that discuss this very moment, they don't know. They offer up five different possibilities. They're not sure. So I appreciate that um, our translator here just calls it pig's delight, which allows a number of different interpretations. So one could be a pork dish, a dish that has uh, pork in it. Um, the commentaries from, you know, a couple, they're from like the fifth century, so 2000 years ago. They uh, say it could also be a rice dish that's prepared with milk, or maybe it's an alchemic elixir. I'm not sure exactly what that is, but some magical chemical potion or something. They also say, well, maybe it's bamboo shoots that are trampled by pigs, like pigs like them. And so they're pigs delight, but they're actually a type of bamboo. And maybe some, and some others have said, no, these are mushrooms that grow where pigs like to be. So there's a wide range of interpretation and nobody really knows. And to make it even more interesting that one of the versions that is uh, preserved in Chinese, they don't even mention what the food, what the food was. Whereas um, one of the other versions that's preserved in Chinese, they say it is mushrooms. So we might ask ourselves, because there's no way of really knowing, we might ask ourselves, does it really matter? How do we, what's the, what uh, significance are we giving to this? The last thing that the Buddha ate, except that he's noticing that nobody can digest it. So, perhaps as we know, the Buddha gets sick. So having, I'm now in section 4.20. After having eaten the meal provided by Chunda, the Lord was attacked by a severe sickness with bloody diarrhea, with sharp pains, as if he were about to die. He is about to die, right? So it's not surprising. But he endured all this mindfully and clearly aware and without complaint. So some modern scholars will say the fact that he has bloody diarrhea suggests that it's not food poisoning. Usually when we have food poisoning, you might have diarrhea and vomiting, but it's not bloody diarrhea. So modern scholars will say maybe this is pointing to some dysentery disease that he had that we see, saw earlier when he got sick. And or they had this... Uh, enteric ischemic infarction, which is a type of when you part of your gut falls apart. Let's just say that. 
So we don't know exactly what he died, you know, what the, what the cause is. And then again, I might say, does it matter for us precisely what the cause was? I think this is how I'm interpreting it. It points to that he had a human body and was uh, susceptible. You know, human bodies are fragile and they die. So I'm going to skip now to the middle of um, section 5.1. They um, travel to uh, a different place. And the Lord said, Ananda, prepare me a bed between these twin salt trees with my head to the north. I'm tired. I want to lie down. Very good, Lord, said Ananda, and did so. And then the Lord lay down on his right side in the lion posture, placing one foot on the other, mindful and clearly aware. He's in terrible pain. He doesn't feel well. But he lays down mindful and clearly aware. So his mind, he still has mental acuity. He still has all of his capacity. I don't know. I feel inspired by this. And then those twin solitaries burst forth into an abundance of untimely blossoms, which fell upon the Tathagata's body, sprinkling it and covering it in homage. Divine coral tree flowers fell from the sky. Divine sandalwood powder fell from the sky. And divine music and song sounded from the sky. So it's this tremendous scene, right? All this music and the flowers and the scent. Sandalwood was a very prized uh, perfume at the time. And the Buddha says to Ananda, these salt trees have burst forth into an abundance of untimely blossoms and goes through the whole list. Never before has the Tathagata been so honored, revered, esteemed, worshipped, and adored. Saying, this is the highest honor that's ever been paid to me. And yet, whatever monk, nun, male or female lay follower. So he's completely inclusive. At that time, they focused on two genders and those who are ordained and those are who are not ordained, any follower. And yet, whatever follower dwells practicing the Dharma properly and perfectly fulfills the Dharma way, he or she honors the Tathagata, reveres, esteems him, and pays him the supreme homage. So even though there's this tremendous homage being paid to him, the Buddha's pointing towards practice. Practice, this is the way. This is the way to honor me. Therefore, Ananda, we will dwell practicing the Dhamma properly and perfectly fulfill the Dhamma way. This must be your watchword. So focus on practicing. And then, Ananda is sad, then he gets chastised, and then he gets praised. So Asanda says, Ananda says, alas, I'm still a learner with much to do, and the teacher is passing away. So he feels like he wants to learn, therefore he needs a teacher. So maybe he didn't quite hear what the Buddha was saying. The Buddha was talking about we know practice, this is the way forward. So the Buddha says, enough, Ananda, do not weep and wail. Have I not already told you? All things that are pleasant and delightful are changeable, subject to separation and becoming other. So how could it be, Ananda? 
that whatever is born become compounded is subject to decay, how could it be that it should not pass away? So reminding Ananda some of these teachings, and we all need to be reminded of this. We all need to be reminded that we're going to die. And then the Buddha praises him. For a long time, Ananda, you've been in the Tathagata's presence showing loving kindness. You've achieved much merit. Make the effort. And in a short time, you will be free of the corruptions. Free of the corruptions is a shorthand way of saying you'll be awakened. Make the effort, and in a short time, you will be awakened. So the Buddha knows Ananda has the capacity, and he's pointing to practice. And then uh, the Buddha talks to the uh, uh, other monks who are nearby and saying, he is wise. And again, the Buddha is showing some inclusivity. He knows when it's the right time for the monks and the nuns and the male followers and the female followers, so all the followers, for kings and ministers, that is people who are maybe, maybe not followers, but who have high social status at this time. And even people who um, are not followers at all, other schools and their students, that Ananda knows the time when them to come. So Buddha is pointing to the inclusivity here again. And then he goes on to um, say that Ananda has wonderful qualities. Everybody's happy to see him. <laughs> and uh, likens him to a Chakravartin, a wheel-turning monarch, which is the um, in the Buddhist tradition, that is the highest non-spiritual position a person could have, is a wheel-turning monarch. And then maybe to reiterate what uh, he was saying to Ananda earlier, the Buddha says on section 6.1, Ananda, it may be that you will think the teacher's instruction has ceased. Now we have no teacher. It should not be seen like this, Ananda. For what I have taught and explained to you as dharma and discipline will, at my passing, be your teacher. For me, it's really touching, this kind of like tender moments with Ananda, right? Who's been at the Buddha's side all this time. And Ananda, of course, he's distraught because he's thinking that, I'm assuming what's thinking is that his way forward is to, with, requires the Buddha. And the Buddha's pointing to, no, you have what you need. Make some effort and you have some teachings. So I'll end with just a few things to maybe point out here that we see a number of different contrasts or tensions happening in this little section. The Buddha says that not to, the, to, to honor him is not to sprinkle him with flowers and perfumes and music, but to practice. So these kind of two different ways. Or, and then there's this tension of he's dying in the most humble way imaginable. That is, he's eating pork, which in ancient India was not seen as a, eating meat, right? And pork in particular was not seen as a um, high, high esteem. And also mushrooms was not held in high esteem at that time. So whether we interpret it as mushrooms or pork, neither of them were seen as the cleanest food or something like that, I would say. So he's dying after having eaten something that's un 
I don't know what word to use exactly, maybe unseemly, as well as it was served to him by somebody who makes weapons. And he's lying in his, or he has his own excrement, right? He has bloody diarrhea. So it's this kind of, it's the low, it's not pristine, beautiful, exalted. And we can contrast this with the story about his birth. We didn't talk about that so much in this class, but it's this miraculous birth and this, you know, beautiful with the, there's devas there and also flowers that are sprouting and all this type of thing, right? But we can see this contrast in the way that he dies from the way that he's born. And we might ask, well, what, why is that? We also see this contrast, his body is in pain. And yet he's mindful and clearly aware, and he's taking care of Ananda here. So he's not saying, you have to take care of me. It's not so much a cult of the personality type of thing, like you have to revere me. Instead, he's saying, no, he's taking care of others, and he's pointing towards practice. It's not all about me. And then, of course, the um, Ananda is saying he has much to learn from the teacher, and the Buddha is saying no. And then, of course, there's also this tension where Ananda is both chastised and praised. So we see uh, a number of different tensions and different elements here, if we can really start to look into this. So with maybe as that as a kind of uh, explanation of this little section of the sutta, I'll now um, pass it on to David.